0: Welcome to the Friday Men's Breakfast podcast brought to you by the Chapel Podcast Network. In today's lesson from the Book of Romans, Ben Robertson, campus minister with Reformed University Fellowship, continues our study of the biblical teaching of justification as we look again at the life of Abraham. So open your Bibles to Romans chapter 4 and join us as we continue to see how God's righteousness for the unrighteous is revealed in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. In hope he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith and he gave glory to God for our justification. Let's pray and, and jump into this. Uh, Lord God, we pray that you would be with us. Uh, Holy Spirit, unplug our ears, soften our hardened hearts, and give us eyes that we might see and behold beautiful things in your word, we pray. Amen. I don't know if you guys have seen a t- TV show called The Good Place. Uh, it was popular while it was going on, and now it's on like Netflix and these sorts of things. My students loved it. Uh, My wife and I enjoy it, Uh, but if you don't know the premise, there's this moment where um, a woman named Eleanor Shellstrop awakes on a bench and sees a sign in front of her that says, everything's going to be okay in this office, and then someone opens a door. It's uh, Ted Danza, if you remember Sam from Cheers, um, sort of resurrected his career through this role, and uh, he introduces himself as Michael, We learn that he's the archangel Michael, and she has awakened uh, in the afterlife and uh, realizes that she has died. And so Eleanor asks Michael this question. She says, "Um, so who was right about all this, this afterlife place? He says, well, let's see. Hindus are a little bit right, Muslims a little bit, Jews, Christians, Buddhists. Every religion guessed about 5% right about this except for this guy named Doug Forsett. And she says, who's Doug Forsett? Well, Doug was a stoner kid who lived in Calgary during the 1970s, and one night he got really high on mushrooms, and his best friend Randy said, hey, man, what do you think happens after we die? And Doug just launched into this long monologue where he got about 92% correct about the afterlife. I mean, we couldn't believe what we were hearing, he laughs. Maybe my biggest question, says Eleanor, is this, or, well, it's not the heaven or hell idea that you were raised on, she says. He says, but generally speaking, in the afterlife, there's a good place and there's a bad place. You're in the good place. You're okay, Eleanor. You are in the good place. And then he takes her on a tour of the good place, i.e., what we might call heaven, And uh, there's an orientation video for Eleanor and everybody else who's gotten there. And the video goes up. And uh, in the video, Michael again appears on the screen. He says, Hello, everyone, and welcome to your first day in the afterlife. You were all simply put good people. How do we know that you were good? How are we sure? During your time on earth, every one of your actions had a positive or negative value, depending on how much good or bad that action put into the universe. Every sandwich you ate, every time you bought a magazine, every single thing you did had an effect that rippled out over time and ultimately created some amount of good or bad. And then on the screen, is like a, it's sort of like an Apple TV presentation they on this screen and in uh, positive and negative values of actions, in green, positive actions, Red for negative. Here's some examples. In slavery, bonus, 814,332.09 good place points, right? That's a nice one, in slavery. Poison a river, negative 4,010.55 points. Remain loyal to the Cleveland Browns, <laughs> positive 53.83 points. Use Facebook as a verb, negative five point, five five points, and on and on and on. There's all, you have to pause the screen and read all these little things. It's amazing. Anyway, when your time on earth is ended, continues Michael, we calculate the total value of your life using our perfectly accurate measuring system, and only the people who get the very highest scores, the true cream of the crop, get to come here, to the good place. What happens to everyone else, you ask? Don't worry about it. The point is, you are here because you lived one of the very best lives that could be lived. It's the first episode. And the rest of the show is basically unpacking what does it mean to be a really good person or what we might call righteous? And how does one arrive at what the show refers to as the good place? Heaven, we might call it. Or here, it talks about Abraham inheriting the entire world. He and his offspring. And it's a fascinating show. It mesmerized my students. It's lighthearted, and yet it's deeply serious. And they actually ask deep philosophical questions throughout the show at a very high level for a show like this. A friend of mine is a philosophy professor uh, at William & Mary. I've uh, several, you wouldn't believe it, well, you would believe it maybe, but there's quite a few Christian um, faculty members, particularly in the philosophy department at William & Mary. It's really uh, remarkable and encouraging. Um, But my philosophy professor friends have talked about there's a philosophy character, a former philosophy professor who's one of the people in The Good Place, who's a philosopher of ethics, and they said, you know, whoever wrote this show actually knows philosophy professors who teach ethics because they just understand how we think and what's going on and the dilemmas that are presented of what's right and what's wrong, and how do you know if you are in fact an ethical person, a good person, a righteous person, and how could someone ever— be good enough to belong in the good place? Um, And that's the question the show is asking, and spoiler alert, we quickly learn that Eleanor has been confused with another woman named Eleanor Shellstrop, who died at the exact same moment that she did, and she realizes she's there by mistake, but doesn't want anyone to find out. And that's that's the show, all right? Check it out, it's great. And what's what's remarkable to me about that show and why I love talking to students about it, watching episodes and discussing it with them and then digging into the Bible and seeing, like comparing, contrasting what we're hearing from the show and what's actually in Scripture, is it's really the same questions that Paul is addressing here in the first several chapters of Romans. What does it mean to be righteous? How could anyone ever be good enough or not? And if we are scoring the points, who gets to calculate that? And how could you ever even know? How could you ever be sure? How could you be confident? How could you hope against hope? And he unpacks it for us here, and you guys have seen it over the last several weeks. If you've been going through Romans, I listened to a few of the talks online this idea of justification, being made righteous in the eyes of God, that imputation of the righteousness of Jesus that we receive through faith. And he's lifted up David and Abraham as examples of that, that it is only through Faith and the righteousness of God or what he calls here in verse 13, the righteousness of faith, that one can be declared right before God, made righteous. But I want to unpack a few things here from this passage. I want to look first at the promise and the problem, the promise, the problem, the process, and the person, okay? Lots of Ps there. Um, So first, this promise that he references Abraham, this promise that he received Verse 13, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Um, if you remember, Paul is here assuming a certain understanding of the Old Testament for his audience. I don't want to assume that about us, though, like if, you, if you're unfamiliar with Abraham Uh, We see in Genesis 12 where God comes to him and promises to bless him and to bless all nations through him, and the story unfolds as Abraham follows the call of God, goes to this strange land not knowing where he's going, and puts his faith in the Lord and trusts him, uh, not really knowing what's going to happen next. And this promise, Paul is in in some sense expanding a little bit on exactly what Abraham was told because he says, that you and your offspring would be heirs of the world, the whole world. He tells him, I'm going to give you this land, go to the land that I will show you. But Paul expands that geography from a little strip that we now call Israel, about the size of New Jersey, to the world. And it's because he understood the Old Testament not because he's changing it. He said, your offspring, will, all nations will be blessed through you. And that offspring word, it can mean plural in the Old Testament, but also singular. And this promise that would eventually unfold is that one of his offspring, singular, would become the Messiah, the king of the world and the owner of the world. And therefore the children of Abraham, along with Messiah, would inherit the world which is ultimately fulfilled in the new heavens and the new earth, where if you are a child of Abraham, you'll inherit the world, the whole thing. The cosmos under Christ with him will be ours, because it all belongs to him and he is sharing that inheritance with us. We are heirs, inheritors, And he's saying, how does does that come about? That's the promise. The promise. But there's a problem. He's saying it's not not the people who keep the law who get to inherit this. Because what does he say? He's reminding us of these themes he's been building throughout the book. Um, For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. If it's by our keeping of God's law, that we inherit this, if it's up to us to score the good place points in God's economy of how things are ranked, he's saying, you know, the promise is void, null. Promise doesn't matter. But if it's by faith, it's by grace. It's given as gift. And so the promise is sure, for the law brings wrath. Why? Because of our sin. Because who could, who could measure up? Who could perfectly keep the law? But where there is no law, there is no transgression. Um, and that is why he says it depends on faith. There is a problem that you and I have, and that problem is sin and death. And we see that um, both in that the, through the law comes wrath, the punishment of God, because we fail to keep that law. But also there was a problem uh, particularly for Abraham. Did you notice? Here's this promise that God gives him that you're going to be the father of many nations and God is so bold to speak of it as if it's in the past tense. I have made you the father of many nations. As 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 if it has already been done. And who does he say this to? An elderly man with an infertile wife. Right? And time passes throughout the story. And it keeps getting worse because he keeps getting older and his wife keeps not having children. Um, This remarkable thing. Um, And notice the way it puts it here. Um, I love this. Um, I'm finding it here. Okay, verse 19. Um, Talking about Abraham will pick up on this in a minute, but he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or consider the barrenness of his wife's womb, Sarah. And uh, the author of Hebrews says the same thing about Abraham. He was as good as dead. I can imagine like Abraham listening to this, like, I get it, I'm old, like enough, like I know, I'm a hundred, give me a break, <laughs> he's as good as dead. Ever felt as good as dead? Can you imagine? A hundred years old with a barren wife. The problem of sin and death. He's as good as dead. This promise is impossible. It makes absolutely no sense. God told him something truly unbelievable. And he believed. As hard as it is to believe that this man could produce a son with that wife, you and I You will inherit the world. You will die. Your body will fall apart and you will die. But God will raise you up, re-knit your cells and your ligaments and your blood into a resurrection body that will dwell eternally in a remade new earth, that sounds impossible, so far-fetched, so hard to believe unless we know the one who has made the promise. Abraham trusts God more than his own experience, more than what he sees in front of him, more than the disappointment and sorrow of years of waiting for that promise to come true and it not. Coming true. That's the problem. But then the process, the the process. How does this take place? This, This takes place through faith. He says it over and over and over again. This is one of Paul's major themes, not just in Romans, but in all of his works. Let's look at this again. It's why it depends on faith, verse 16, in order that the promise may rest on grace. And be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, namely the Jewish inheritors who would keep the ritual law of Moses, but also the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, in the presence of the God whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. And here again, in hope, he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised, which is why it is counted to him as righteousness or credited to him as righteousness. So the point is that it's grace. And if it's not through faith, then it's not grace. You hear that? And yet, I don't know about you, but sometimes I find a way to twist that back around and I turn faith into another work. And, you know, you read that and it says, you know, Abraham did not waver in his faith unwavering, and I look at my shaky faith, and I'm like, well, I'm doubting God left, right, and center. If I can just believe better, I'm going to get really good at faith, and that will please God, right? You look back on your life, you've seen your faith be a little shaky at times. It was remarkable to me about the way Paul talks about Abraham here. Have you read Genesis 12 through 24? (laughs) Does Abraham's life look like unwavering faith? Chapter 12, he goes, amazing faith. God says, go to that land. And he's like, well, I don't even know where that is, but I'll just do it, Lord. Okay, I'll, I'll leave my family. And we're, here we go. Second half of chapter 12, what does Abraham do? Uh, hey, Pharaoh, this is my sister. <laughs> he's going to kill me if you don't say, if you, if, if you say you're my wife. Like, and so Pharaoh takes Sarah as his wife. She goes into his house, and then he does it again, like 10 chapters later. It's like he didn't learn the lesson. Or Midway through, like chapter 15, we've got, it's credited to him as righteousness. This famous passage, like, goes out and looks at the stars. So shall your offspring breed. Count them, son. This is yours. What do they do next chapter? You know what? This kid's not coming along, Abraham, says Sarah. I'm like, why don't you sleep with Hagar? And that'll be how we get our son. The man of unwavering faith says, yes, dear, and sleeps with the nanny and has a son, Ishmael, right? Paul looks back at the course of his life, though, and he says, he didn't waver. You ever told another man to take your wife because you didn't want him to kill you? Or your wife say, why don't you, let's have a kid through this, this one. And maybe you have. And yet Paul looks back and he says, declared righteous. Like think about the good place points on those two events alone. There's a lot of negative points there, Abe. Right? But God doesn't leave him. God had made a covenant with Abraham and he said, you are mine. I have made you the father of many nations and was so committed to Abram and to his offspring that he stuck by him, declared him righteous. And yes, Abram grew in faith over time and this is where he hoped against hope. I think Paul's thinking there of chapter 22 when Abram goes and sacrifices Isaac, even though this promise has finally come true in his old age, and Sarah has miraculously given birth to Isaac. And then as soon as Isaac has become a young man, and he's like at this critical stage and this point where Abram's going to be most proud of him, what does he do? Sacrifice your son, your only one, the one that you love, Isaac, and Abram does it. Why? Because he had faith. Hebrews tells us that Abraham looking forward to the resurrection, was willing to sacrifice Isaac. Do you remember that story when Abram is telling the men that are with them as they're going, as he's going to sacrifice Isaac, he says, the boy and I will go up alone and we're going to worship and we will come back to you. Before getting there, before the ram is given, before God speaks and says, Abram, Abram, don't kill him now when he's ready to do it. Because he believes that God could raise the dead. And that he had promised that through Isaac, the world would be blessed. And he knew, even if I slay him, my God will raise him back up. That he believed in the resurrection. Verse 22, or verse 21, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness But the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead our Lord Jesus. There it is, resurrection. Who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And he's saying these promises were given for Abraham's sake, for sure. But for you, not just for him, but for us. Because the same God is the same God who is the God of creation and the God of resurrection. Uh, Back in verse 17, I love what it says there. Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. Again, as if it's already been done. And he believes God, but why does he believe? Because he is in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that don't exist. God is the God of creation and resurrection. He calls things into existence that don't exist, like a son that can't be born of an old man and a barren woman, or the universe itself. And He is the God who raises the dead and who raised our Lord Jesus for our justification. Think about that unwavering faith again. In the life of Abraham, it's a hot mess, as my students would say. I'm guessing if you look back on your life, you can think of a whole lot of things that you deeply, deeply regret. And you wish you had more faith. I do too. I want to grow in faith. Abraham grew in faith. He became more confident. He he did get transformed through the course of his life in so many ways. But here's the thing. All right, imagine this. Um, you're on a flight to Los Angeles. You got... You and a passenger next to you. Let's say the person next to you is terrified of flying. Their biggest fear. And they get on that plane and they're like breathing into the bag and they're white knuckling, grabbing the seat. Every little bit of turbulence, they're freaking out, having a panic attack. But you've flown a bunch of times and you're like, yeah, this is normal. Turbulence, not a big deal. Watch a movie, kick back, read a book. We'll get there. Another person's freaking out. They're up and down, clawing for help. Breathing the oxygen. Flailing. Who gets to Los Angeles? Both of you. Why? Because it's not about the passengers, it's about the plane. See, faith is what connects us to the righteousness of Jesus and his resurrection. And even flailing, panicky faith is the conduit, it's the connection, it's the ticket to the plane, it's the seat, but Jesus is the plane. Faith saves us because Jesus saves us, because he is enough, because he is sufficient, because God makes good on his promises, because our faith is in the God who calls something out of nothing and who even takes the somethings that have been created and died and brings them back to life. And that's the hope of the gospel. That is what Jesus came and did for you and for me because the promise isn't just for Abram, it's for us. And because of him, you and I can confidently and fearfully and in trembling say, we will inherit the world along with our father, Abram. Thanks for joining us today. For more information on the Williamsburg Friday Men's Breakfast, please visit wcchapel.org slash mensbreakfast. I hope you'll join us again for our next installment in our study of the Book of Romans. Until then, know that you have been set apart for the gospel of Jesus Christ. God bless and have a great week.